way to understand God's Word is to study it book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, sometimes word by word. And so, for the time being, we are in the book of Galatians. And Galatians is an important is an important document for us because Galatians is one of those books that answers the big one of the big questions in life. And so when I'm talking about big questions, uh, I'm talking about these things like how did I get here? Why am I here? Why is there something rather than nothing? Who am I? Do I have a purpose? That's what I mean by big questions. And the big question that the book of Galatians addresses is can a person stand or how can a person stand before a holy God? That's a big question. When I die, can I stand before God? Thank you. You are absolutely correct. My response will be much more lengthy. (laughs) Probably not better, though. So, when we look at the book of Galatians, it's answering how does a person, can a person stand before God? If so, how? And when we began our study, I mentioned to you, I probably talked about this periodically, but Galatians is is broken down real neatly and it outlines real nicely. The first two chapters, chapters one and two, deal with uh, a biographical, is biographical. In other words, Paul is outlining his commission as an apostle because you have to remember false teachers came into the region of Galatia after Paul Paul and Barnabas went to Galatia they preached the gospel people were saved churches were started everything was going well and immediately upon leaving and perhaps even while they were there false teachers came in and said no Paul and his cohorts and his message are are worthless they, they, they are incomplete Paul didn't really tell you the whole story and the way they Uh, attacked Paul well one of the ways they attacked Paul was they attacked his person in other words Paul doesn't have the authority to say what Paul just said Paul claims to be an apostle but he's really not an apostle he's just a self uh, a self established a leader of the church but really he's not in other words this is an ad hominem attack attack the messenger not the message and so because see if you can attack the messenger and eliminate the messenger then you can much more easily eliminate what he says this is really evident just turn on the news and and listen to all of the political campaigns most of the time they are not attacking the issues they are attacking the person who made the statement so in other words this political candidate is worthless because 40 years ago they did something they threw a water balloon at somebody or something silly but they're attacking the person in order to invalidate the message this is exactly what's going on in Galatians and so Paul first says no I am an apostle he gives a biographical sketch and he says no I have the credentials to make this state make these statements second part of the book, chapters 3 and 4 is theological in other words, Paul is saying the gospel that I'm proclaiming this gospel that is by grace alone through faith alone on the merits of Christ alone is is not something new in fact, you can find it throughout scripture if we go all the way back to Abraham and if you're not familiar with with the Bible Abraham appears very, very early in the Bible he's kind of the forefather of, uh, uh, of of the Jewish people and 
what I'm talking about goes all the way back to, to Abraham. I'm not saying anything new. And he begins to outline a theological basis for his understanding of grace by faith in Christ alone. And so then when we get to chapters 5 and 6, we might call these the practical sections, the practical chapters, if you will. In other words, Paul is outlining, so now that I've given you this theological Material. How do you live that out practically? Does it make a difference in your life? And if you've been in this church for very long, you know that I do not believe that you can separate um, theology from practice. All right. I know sometimes we think, oh, theology is for all these eggheads and ivory towers, and they just write stuff, and it's all for them, and it has no meaning in the, in the way I live my life. I completely disagree with that. I believe the theology uh, affects or even determines how we live. We all live what we believe. Bottom line is, you live what you believe, and so, so therefore. Paul is laying out, now that I've shared with you this theological, this is how it should impact your life. This is what it's going to look like in a life that believes the gospel that I have just presented. So that's where we're at. So we're in chapter 5. We're beginning a a new section. And let me just uh, give just a little bit more background. Paul is... Answering this question, how does a person live... Can a person... uh, Stand before God. And that issue has been addressed in really two different ways. There's really only two different ways that that question has been answered. How can I live before, how can I stand before God? How can I stand before a holy God? And that's been answered really in just two ways. The first way is that I will stand before God based upon my own human merit. In other words, I will do some things that will cause God to. Look upon me favorably. I will make sure that I feed the poor or I clothe the naked or I'm compassionate at work or I'm honest and I don't extort money or anything like that. I don't kill anybody. Those types of things. In other words, more likely than not, somebody might say that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds and because of that, God will look favorably upon me. And pretty much every religion in the world has that as its basis. And pretty much every non-religion, most of your friends will say, well, I'm not really religious, I'm just spiritual. I guarantee you, if you ask them, how will they stand before, a, before God, they will say, well, because I'm a good person. All right? And, and whether you call yourself Hindu or Buddhist or Baha'i or Mormon or Christian scientist or any of these other things, more likely than not, that is your position. But there's one other position. And the other position then comes from Scripture. It is the Christian position. And that is that a person will stand favorably before God simply because it is God's gift. God bestows upon them His favor, not because they earned something or did something that is of such great worth or such great value that God says, Oh, man, boy, if the world didn't have you. But rather... All stand condemned before me, but in my gracious mercy and in my free grace, I offer to you 
the ability to stand before me holy and blameless. And that would be through the work of Christ alone. So this is, this is where we're going with Galatians. I know it's a lot of background, but I think it's helpful um, if you've been in our been here week by week. This is all review, but it's good to remember what we're doing here to keep the context of the letter. And also then, if you're new here, this is what we've been looking at. So, now let's look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. I'll read those verses and then we'll uh, spend some time unpacking them a bit. And so verse 5, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are awaiting are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. And this is the Word of God. So, Paul begins with this idea of freedom, and I suppose we should spend just a few moments discussing freedom and what do we mean by freedom? And there are a number of different ways people refer to freedom. And I put a few up on the screen. Sometimes when we talk about freedom, people might be talking about external freedom. And that would simply be the freedom from undue interference. In other words, um, you're not in some undue manner going to stop me from doing what I want to do. We might refer to that as freedom, or perhaps political freedom, that is a predictable and permanent right of action, such as freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of press, freedom of religion, these things that Americans certainly hold uh, near and dear. We might talk about economic freedom or financial freedom, and that could be um, socially or uh, you know, federally or nationwide, but it also can be personal. Some of us um, maybe working on how do I get out of debt? How do I have financial freedom so that I can spend my hard-earned money in the manner and the way in which I want to spend it and so I don't have to pay the bank, but I can give it and spend it in the way I want to. So economic freedom. And then there is what we'll call spiritual freedom. And I'm describing spiritual freedom as the striving for identification with God or being unencumbered by the disharmony of the material world and or self. And generally this is just the idea of being having harmony with God. And generally those who are seeking spiritual freedom will speak will seek spiritual freedom through one of two ways. And the first way they will seek it is through asceticism, or that is denying yourself, or basically, um, you know, just denying yourself. Perhaps very strict legalistic rules. The other way people that deal with spiritual freedom is through license. That is, um, I'm just going to go ahead and do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want, at any time I want, and this is how I will somehow gain harmony with God. Now, now that we have that, you can disregard it. (laughs) Because Paul's talking about a different kind of freedom. I just wanted to take those off the table. So when Paul's talking about a freedom, he's talking about a a spiritual freedom, a a different type of spiritual freedom, but he is talking about a, a... 
There is a biblical perspective then to the freedom that Paul is talking about. And what I mean by this is that a person is free from death and from sin and from the devil. That is emancipation from the old slave holders of humanity. So Paul has a very narrow sense of what he means by freedom. It does not mean that you can just live however you want or that somehow your political leaders are going to open up opportunities for you. Uh, those, those issues are mentioned in the, in the Bible, but when Paul's talking about freedom, at least in the book of Galatians, he's dealing with it as emancipation from the old slave owners of humanity, and those are sin, death, and the devil, because they all keep us enslaved. So, we've taken some things off the table, we've put this definition on the table, this is what Paul is dealing with when he talks about freedom. So, we should note then that apart from Christ, there is no freedom. Apart from Christ, there is no emancipation from sin, death, and the devil. That you are, you continue to be enslaved to these things. You continue to be enslaved to sin, you continue to be enslaved to death. You will die, and there, and there will be this eternal separation of you from God. That's my understanding of death. That is a separation, and in the eternal sense, a separation uh, from God, and that you are continually enslaved by um, the prince of this world. So apart from Christ, there is no freedom. We, we have this mistaken idea that true freedom is just... Me being fulfilled, it is some sort of self-fulfillment. But true freedom is not self-fulfillment. True freedom is something that is given to us by God. It is not legalism. It is not putting down a whole bunch of rules and saying, if you follow these things, then everything will be well. Nor is it license or libertinism, where I can just go and do, and, you know, back when I was growing up, there was a phrase, I know it's out of, pretty out of touch now, or out of vogue now, but if it feels good, do it. Alright? And many people have adopted that. You know, if it feels good, do it. If it doesn't hurt anybody, what's the harm? That's not the freedom that Paul is talking about because that would actually be bondage to sin and to death. And so, when Paul is talking about freedom, he is talking about a heart that is set free to love Christ Um, It is then also the capacity to do everything that God has ordained. Jesus told us back in the book of John, chapter 8, 32, he says, I'll just read this. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And then verse 36. So if the son makes you free, you will be free. Free indeed. And so our text begins with this statement. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. This is an interesting first because it begins with an assertion. The assertion is this. It is for freedom that Christ set you free. And it is followed then by a command. And the command is then, stand firm. And do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So the assertion, you are free, the command, now live free. We have been set free to live in accordance with God's purposes. This is why I entitled this whole 
series, an Emancipation Proclamation, because that's exactly what it is. You are free people. Now live in the freedom that you have been given. So it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. We should note, first of all, notice who does the freeing. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. It does not say it was for freedom that you unchain the shackles all by yourself. Nor does it say that it was for freedom that you and Christ cooperatively unlocked the shackles together. No, your freedom has been purchased for you by Christ Himself totally. It was for freedom that Christ, Christ set you free. We should also note that this implies to use a cliche that freedom is not free. Well, it might be free to you. It did not come without cost. In other words, somebody paid it for it. And in this case, it was Christ who set you free. Christ is the one who paid for your freedom. He purchased it on Calvary when He bore your sins and bore God's wrath for your sins on the cross at Calvary. At that time, then, sin is being paid for, but it was not free. Never think for a moment that it was free, but you are free. Let me give you a little illustration that might be helpful as we go through this passage. I'll knock off my microphone first. That was planned. If you actually had my notes, I know you have a different set of notes, but my notes say knock off your microphone right here. See it? <laughs> Prisons and, and asylums are reserved then for those who are unable or unwilling to submit to some sort of internal control. And so therefore we place external controls around them. So in other words, because a person does not submit to their internal this internal mechanism to not assault another person. Perhaps in a road rage or in some sort of violent outburst or they uh, are unable to control their greed and so they, they extort money from the, the, their, biz, their place of business or what have you. It is because they are unable to uh, control this internal themselves internally that we place about them external controls. Basically walls and bars and razor wire and guards with automatic weapons. Those are the external controls. However, when we let somebody out of prison, we are in no way saying, now you are free to do whatever you want. In other words, now that we've removed the external controls, you can go ahead and rob and cheat and steal and assault and do all those things once again. We're not saying that. We're saying once you are free, you still have, you still need to be a law-abiding citizen. There are still laws and rules and morals and things that you need to follow and, and obey. We're just trusting that you now have that internal ability to do, to follow uh, civic law. And as soon as you fail, we're going to put external walls back around you. Does that kind of make sense? Say yes or no or yes, yes, okay. Likewise, so freedom does not include permission to live in lawlessness. um, And neither does freedom in Christ then give us permission to live in lawlessness. When we were set free in Christ, Christ gave us his spirit, this internal 
control in order for us to be able to live in joyful adherence to God's law. So when Christ set us free, He did not set us free to live in whatever manner we feel like living. To do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want, at any time we want, and as frequently as we want. That is not what freedom in Christ means. And perhaps some of you, if we've been going through the book of Galatians, you might be wondering, well, if God saved us by grace and not through any work of our own, then does that mean I can live however I want? And that's a fair question, because I can see how you would get there. So now Paul's addressing, so those of you who've had that question, Paul's now going to be dealing with it for the next two chapters. So now when we are set free in Christ, Christ gives us his spirit so that this is now that internal control so that we might live in joyful obedience to the things that God has commanded. So Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me in the life that I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me. And so I have been crucified with Christ. I've died with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ, that is the risen Christ, who is seated at the right hand, now lives his life through me by means of the Holy Spirit. So Christ is now living out his life through me, through this internal Holy Spirit, who is enabling me to live in joyful obedience to the things that God has called me to do. And so, Christ has set you free. Do not be... Do not go back to the prison cell that Christ has unlocked for you. And the false teaching that Paul is addressing in the book of Galatians is threatening to place these listeners, these hearers, these Galatians back into a bondage that Christ had set them free from. So, it is for freedom that Christ set you free. That's the assertion. The command, now live free. Live in the freedom that Christ has purchased. And we're going to talk a little bit as we go through. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll detail what exactly it means to live in joyful adherence to God's, uh, to God's commands. But we won't get there today. You'll have to come back next week. See how I did that right? A little cliffhanger. <laughs> Paul then goes on and he begins to describe... Three fallacies, or three follies, I put it, three foolish arguments for living under this legalist, the legalistic rules that his detractors are putting forth. See, Paul came in and said that a person is made right before God by God's grace, that is, by God's gift, um, and it is by you believing it, and it is on the merits of Christ alone. These uh, detractors came in and said, no, Paul didn't have it right. See, Jesus is really, really good. We're all for Jesus. Yay, Jesus. Team Jesus. But you need to do some things first. Or you need to do some things in cooperation with Jesus. You need to be, in Paul's day, they were arguing for three things. You needed to be circumcised. You needed to to follow certain religious um, holy days. And you needed to to follow certain dietary laws. Do those three things, and then Jesus picks up that slack that, you know, wherever you may fall short, Jesus picks up that slack. And Paul's saying, this is not true. That's not true at all. In fact, that's foolishness. 
And I don't want you to go back to that because Christ has purchased everything. And so these are the three follies then that Paul puts forth towards those who might be leaning um, to this false teaching. First of all, he says um, that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be no, of no benefit to you. Let me um, make a couple introductory statements before I actually deal with that. Paul, by the way, is not de- de- condemning circumcision. Uh, Paul was circumcised. Paul circumcised others. And uh, so if as a ceremony or as a practice, Paul is not condemning it. He is simply condemning it as a means of justification. In other words, if you circumcise your child, no big deal. Go ahead and, and do that. Now, if you think what, what the Judaizers, what Paul's detractors are saying, is that circumcision equals salvation. And he's saying, that's utterly and completely wrong. The ceremony itself i got no problem with. In fact, I've performed it. What I'm saying is if you think for a moment that that brings you to a place of salvation, then you are totally and completely in error. For instance, we let me give you an illustration. We celebrate as a ceremony, if you will, the Lord's Supper every second Sunday of the month. That's what we do. That's our tradition. We do hold it fairly sacred. And that's not a problem. Here would be the problem. The problem would be if we got to a place and said, listen, only those who celebrate uh, Lord's Supper on the second Sunday of the month are acceptable in the sight of God. Do you see the difference between a ceremony and the legalism? The legalism is way off base. The ceremony itself, no big deal. We're glad that you celebrate the, the Lord's Supper on the second Sunday of the month. But if we try to raise that to the level of the means of being, the means of salvation, well then we would have a problem. And then I believe we would fall into error, the same type of error that Paul's detractors have fallen into. So Paul begins, Behold, I, Paul. In other words, look, pay attention to me. This is an emphatic. Pay attention to me. I say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Basically, he said, if salvation can be obtained through some sort of physical ceremony, then what need is there for Christ? If you can achieve salvation on your own, through your own ability, through your own merit, through your own work, then why do you need Christ? If you can do it yourself, then Christ was utterly wrong. Because what did he say in the garden? Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. And guess what? There was no other way. Just his death on the cross. And Paul's just picking up that thing. If you think for a moment that some ceremony, some ritual, some manner of life is going to earn you favor with God, then Christ died unnecessarily. See, Paul is saying it's either works or grace. There is no in-between. You're either saved by by the good things you do, or you're saved by the gift of God. In Romans 11, 6, we read, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If it's by works, then it's no longer grace. 
Grace and law are two mutually exclusive um, avenues. When we substitute works for grace, we minimize the effect of sin, and hence we minimize the work of Christ. In other words, when I say that my good behavior can overcome my sin, we are somehow saying, I I believe that we minimize the the magnitude of the fall. Because we're saying, well, I created the mess, I can clean it up. But the gospel is this. You may have created the mess, but you can't clean it up. You need somebody else to clean up the mess you made. And this is what Christ has done. He has come in and he has without being condescending, cleaned up the mess that we've made. This is why I have such a problem. We, we have this, what people call moral therapeutic deism, which I won't But basically, the gospel in many churches is just a therapy session. How to feel good about yourself, and how to have a, a good high self-esteem, and how to you know, be a better employee or how to be a better employer or how to be a better father or husband or, or uh, how to be a better wife or mother, those types of things. But the gospel is all about this eradication, the, the heavy price that Christ paid to purchase us from eternal separation from God our Father. And when we substitute works for grace, we minimize the effect of sin. We minimize the work of Christ. Today, many people do not see themselves as sinners. I think that's the, one of the biggest issues. People, I, I know in churches that sometimes, well, we don't want to talk about sin. Well, we talk about sin here. Because if you're not a sinner, you don't need a Savior. And if your sin is tiny, then you just need a tiny Savior. But if the magnitude of sin is so great that there is nothing you can do on your own, then what can you do other than to fall upon the mercies of God? And that's it. And that is the gospel. That we see sin for what it is. I'm not here to condemn people, but sin condemns us. And God will condemn us. And yet at the same time, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And so we talk about it. Not because it's pleasant or we we glory or revel in it, but because it's a fact of life. Well, that's Paul's first... He identifies this first foolish idea. That if you think that you can attain right standing before God simply by a, a ceremony of cutting away the flesh, then why do you need Christ? Christ, you've got a bigger problem. Christ's death and resurrection were of no purpose for you. That's the first foolishness. The second foolishness is, I think I just put, um, that you've bitten off more than you chew. Well, that's probably the colloquial way of saying it. You're getting more than you bargained for. You've bitten off more than you can chew. He goes on and he says, And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. In other words... If you want to gain your salvation through some outward act, you not only lose Christ, but you gain an intolerable burden. Here's what Paul is saying. If you want to be justified, that is declared not guilty by these 
by law keeping, that's fine. Now you need to keep the whole law. Every aspect of it. Every jot and tittle, every mark, every small detail you must keep. We read this over in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 10, where we read, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. And this is what Paul is saying. If you want to be justified in this way, then you need to keep every aspect of the law. And here's the thing. This is a standard that nobody has ever kept except Christ. Nobody in the long history of humanity has ever kept God's law perfectly or completely. And you're saying, ah, that's the standard I want to live by. Really? Nobody's ever succeeded. It is a 100% failure rate except Christ, and you're not Him. But that's the standard that I want to be judged by. Paul's saying, you've bitten off more than you can chew. That's more than you bargained for. That's, that's not a solution. That's a problem. That's foolishness. In fact, Paul would go on to say, or has said earlier in Galatians 3.10, that not only is it foolishness, but trying to keep the whole law is really a curse. You're under a curse if you try to do this. Christ set us free from the curse. Don't go back to that prison. That would be foolish. Now somebody might object and say, wait a second. The law itself provided a remedy for the lawbreaker. That is, through the sacrificing of an innocent victim like a, a, a lamb or a pigeon dove or a, I'm sorry, a turtle dove or a goat, some sort of animal sacrifice. Here's the problem with that objection, is that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. It never did. It simply covered over the sin until the sinless Lamb of God came and gave himself on Calvary. See, and now that Christ has completed this, so first of all, the blood of lambs and bulls and goats was never a remedy for your sin. You offered it in faith. Now that Christ has come and completed his work, here's the thing, those sacrifices not only are not only powerless, they are idolatrous. If you were to say, well, I'm going to sacrifice a lamb or a bull or a goat to cover my sin, not only are they powerless, but you are trusting in something that cannot do anything for you. And so, the second objection is, I think you've bitten off more than you can chew. If you want to be justified by having your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, here's, here's God's standard. There can be no bad deeds. So how are you doing on that one? Doing okay? Pretty, pretty perfect so far? Yeah, good. Nobody's nodding their head yes. <laughs> the third issue that Paul brings up, he says, you've been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. Now, let me make a quick clarification on this because it is very easy to... to use this in a way that I don't believe this verse was ever intended. So, here it is not talking about whether a person is eternally secure or not. It is not talking about whether a person perseveres in the faith or not. It is not talking about whether a person can lose their salvation or not. Why do I say that? Because there are three three first most important rules in Bible interpretation are what? Context, context, context. Right? Remember that. When we interpret the Bible, 
we take context, context, context. Everything after that is important, and there are some other important rules for interpreting scripture, but consider those three first. And this whole passage has nothing to do with that issue. It has everything to do with the separation between law and grace. It has nothing to do with perseverance or lack of perseverance or um, security or lack of security. It's it would be using the wrong verse. There are probably good verses to support both sides of that issue, and I and fine, use those. Just don't use a verse that has nothing to do with the subject, and then try to force it in and say, "See, that is what we would call a logical fallacy." So Paul's not talking about that. So I've taken that off the table. Here's here's what he's talking about. He's talking about law and grace, and here's what he's trying to say: that. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. In other words, if you want to try to combine law with grace, you have fallen away from grace as a principle. And this is foolishness because now you've severed yourself from Christ. And here's the thing. Jesus tells us in John 15 that he is the source of life. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So by seeking to be justified by some external merit, you are now severing yourself, separating yourself from the very one who can give you life. And that's foolishness. Life cannot be maintained once it has been removed from the source. And you cannot combine law and grace. They just don't mix. This is what Paul is saying. So, just a quick summary. The false teaching then... It's that the work of Christ needs to be supplemented by works of the law. And Paul is saying, no, that's not true. A person is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on the merits of Christ alone. Now, what about works? Do we do anything? Do we just sit back and just soak in grace? Well, Paul's going to begin dealing with that in chapters, the rest of chapter 5 and 6. And, and he starts it here in verse 5. He says, For we, through the Spirit by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor circumcision means anything but faith working through love. The idea here is, first of all, if you are a follower of Christ, you are right now righteous. That means you are right now in right standing with God. That's a good thing. Um, it is a good thing. But there's a future aspect of this righteousness as well. Basically, we might call it eternal life. And that has yet to be realized. That is the hope of righteousness. So while you are right now declared righteous, the moment you came to Christ and He forgave you of your sins, He declared you right. He declared you not guilty. That You were now in right standing. But there is a future aspect to this righteousness. We call that eternal life. And this is what Paul is dealing with. That eternal life is not... So while you are righteous now, you are waiting for a righteousness yet to be revealed. Paul calls it the hope of righteousness. And so we, through the Spirit, are waiting for this eternal life. By faith, we wait for our salvation. By faith, we wait for our future salvation. We do not work for our future salvation. We wait for that which has been accomplished by Christ. We do not strive to achieve it. Because final glorification is as much a gift as our initial justification. That is, when you came to Christ, when you entered into the life of Christ, it was by faith. It will be maintained by faith and you will enter into it, into eternal life. It is all by God's grace. 
You came in by God's grace. You are maintained by God's grace. And when you enter into the thre- over the threshold of eternity, it will be by God's grace. Amen. We wait for it. We do not work for it. You didn't start your Christian life by faith and now you're trying to work it out and trying to earn your, what God has done for you. You see, we trust Christ. We are born again by the Spirit. We live out this life by the Spirit's power. It is by the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father, that we know that He is our Father and we are His children and we will enter into eternal life by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the work of God from beginning to end. And then this faith that we have is not a dead faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. That is, our faith works itself out through love. Ceremonies may have some benefit in our lives, but they do not benefit us in the area of justification. The two great commandments. Well, the first great commandment is to love God with all of your being. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. I am to love God and I am to love God's people. And so, I do not steal. Why do I not steal? I do not steal because, well, well, there are a couple of reasons somebody may not steal. They may not steal because, well, that will make God mad. Okay, well, that's a reason. Or one reason. Another reason is because I don't want to go to jail. That's another reason. But here is the Christian reason. Here is the reason that Paul is arguing for. We do not steal because I love my brother. And stealing from him would not be an act of love. In fact, it would be showing that I despise my brother. I love, I love my Lord. And so I will, in joyful compliance, express my love by doing what he says. And I will express my love to my neighbor by not taking his stuff. So I do not steal. Is it be- it's not because of the law. It's because of love. To love my neighbor necessitates that I don't steal from him. I do nothing to cause my brother to stumble. Why? Because I have a love for my brother. This is the love that Christ has put in our hearts by faith through his spirit. And so what Paul is explaining to us here is that the only kind of faith that is worth anything expresses itself through love. And so you are free. Now live in the freedom that God has purchased for you. And you are now free to love God. And in loving God you will love your neighbor. So I'll conclude then with this. You are free. You now need to live like free men and women. You are free not to license or legalism. You are free to live out your father's good pleasure. You can love him without fear. And you can love your neighbor to the glory of God. You are free from being fearful of his presence. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You can live in freedom of God's wrath. This is why in Hebrews when it says that we can come boldly into the presence of God. That's exactly what he means. You do not need to fear being in God's presence. God will not condemn you and he will not cast you out. You have that freedom to dwell in God's presence. And you are free from sin. That is, you do not have to sin. I'm not saying you won't. I'm saying you don't have to. 
I believe that God also gives us new desires by His Spirit so that we do not want to sin. You are free from death. That even though you die, you will never, you will live forever. Eternal death, eternal separation from God, you are free from that. And you are free from the schemes of the enemy because you now have a new Lord, you now have a new Master, and He is a wonderful Savior who has loved you and died and gave Himself for you. You are free. Now live like free people. Let's stand.